podcast ain't play nobody. Um, at breaking recruiting update hub center watch 2018. Um, uh, probably Alabama is good right now. Um, Georgia is good. Um, Bill, I'm going to throw it over to you. What can you tell me about what's going on out there? Uh, I've kind of started to look at the NFL and stop paying attention to college football. So I I don't know. Jesus, Bill. What did you do? So you're going to the NFL? Yeah, I think so. It's, it's the love affairs over. (sighs) So, so for real, um, so here's, here's a soul check. Um, soul check. uh, That's, that's, that was, I came up with that on the fly. So this is for our listeners. Not to really tell me where I'm wrong because I'm going to do this anyway, but um, you know, to to help me justify, help me rationalize all of this. So, um, in the past couple of months, well, year really, but especially the last couple of months, and I've talked about this a little bit on this. I, I've quote unquote gone to coaching school, just try to read and read and read about innovation and how people came, uh, how how coaches came to, how success happens. Um, and all that. And so when you do that, when you dive into a bunch of books and, and devour as much as possible and only read about football, um, which is funny because for a number of years I read about all other like uh, sports or topics and didn't read about football. Um, when you do that, you're, you're bound to a come across Bill Walsh and fall into a massive Bill Walsh rabbit hole. But from there, you're going to, you read about Tom Landry and, and, you know, whoever Lombardi and, and NFL coaches. And when you look at NFL versus college from a coaching perspective, especially if you're talking about Bill Walsh and game planning and, and uh, that aspect of things, the sport kind of starts to seem the same at, at different levels. Um, of course it is sort of the same wow, at different levels, okay. but it's so, it's so funny that such an innocuous statement could be considered heresy, but continue. Take your own grave with our listeners. Understand that everything I'm saying right now feels very weird to say. Um, So, yeah, if you come at it from that angle, from the coaching side, even though obviously we know the tactics are different and we know all of the the stodginess that exists there, although apparently, according to the Super Bowl and according to the Kansas City Chiefs offense, college and pro really are the same now. Um, But, yeah, okay, so... There uh, is a weird moment in which they're like, okay the future is Patrick Mahomes and I'm sitting there like, you know, drinking a cup of coffee being like, man, yes. y'all are fine. Yes. yes. Um, so anyway, so yes, I, I, um, among the other things that I've read, especially over the last month was finding the winning edge, the famous Bill Walsh coaching Bible, basically where like, if you watch that, what, what is the NFL network bio show called football life or something like that? The Bill Walsh episode of that show is basically a bunch of people reading from finding the winning edge. Like it's that well-regarded in, uh, the coaching community, uh, even though it has the most generic title of all time, Like I'm pretty sure Don Shula has a book called the winning edge. And so like, it's, it's, it's terribly generic and it's hard to find. um, This is just about buying steakhouses. (laughs) Right. Which appears to have been pretty good business. So So when you you told me about this book and the one thing I didn't realize was you're so overjoyed about it. And I was like, well, whatever, man, like, you know, we're in the digital age, but this thing is strangely hard to come by. Yes. They were 35,000, 35,000 copies. Um, Okay. 
and printed printed when it came out originally and then it's not readily available on like a kindle type service if if you go to amazon or you go to ebay you're gonna pay like 200 bucks for a copy um because it's out of print uh they're not making any more every coach in america owns one therefore there are very few like available uh but anyway it was a very very interesting read And, and when you're reading it it's so absurdly comprehensive um, like if I read it and I'm focusing on game plans and some of the stat stuff he hinted at and all this, my brain went in that direction. If somebody, if like a, a random manager, uh, read it, they would take all this people management information from it that he shares. Uh, it's just everything he could possibly think to put in a book. It's like 600 pages long or almost. Um, and you skim parts, you, you home in on parts. It's a really, it is as good a read as everybody says it is, you know, Chris Brown's called it the Bible for a long time, but Anyway, so as I'm reading this, I'm coming up with some college ideas that I'm going to pursue, um, stats and otherwise. It's going to – it was really – I'm I'm talking faster than my brain's going. So, like, I've been reading Kindle for a while now, and I'll do that highlight thing. And then when you're done with a book, you can just basically export all the highlights, and you've got little notes that you've taken. Um, I did procure a problem. Plagiarism has never been easier. I know. And I, I, um, I procured what was probably an illegal PDF of this book. Um, cause I don't think there's a legal, I don't think there has been a, a, a an e-reader version by any means. Uh, Does it look was, like someone just Xeroxed it? Kind of like you can't, the formatting is definitely odd. Um, regardless. Um, so I, I like highlight sections and at the end of, you know, reading a book, I'll have, a, a you know, one or 2000 words worth of little notes, uh, exports or whatnot. There were, I, I ended up highlighting 16,000 words worth of notes from this book, uh, and highlighted a bunch for, for this piece of this idea, this stat thing, whatever. But I started kind of coming up with NFL ideas while I was reading it too. Um, like, like he, he makes salary cap cap management seem kind of intriguing, uh, which I didn't, which I, I understand exactly how that sounds, but do you, do you, so as I wrote this book, I, I managed to find some NFL play by play online. I started tinkering with it. Um, cause that's what I do. And I'm kind of to the point where I want to like kind of you know, complete the circle, so to speak, and see like where the similarities and differences are between college and pro from a stat perspective, uh, you know, with college playbooks starting to actually bleed over into the NFL, then that part is kind of interesting. I suddenly have a lot of NFL ideas and I feel gross about it, but how, how, Part of the reason I think I fell out of, uh, you know, that I just kind of drifted away from the NFL in general is just how gross it is, you know, at the top level. Not the, not the you know, back end, come in the back door, talk about coaching and plays and stuff, yeah. but in the yeah. ownership, management, executive, blah, 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 blah. It's terrible. And it has been terrible. It's gotten worse. I understand all that. But I really... When I find myself as opposed to the pure, clean sport well, that we cover, that's what I'm saying. Like when, when I, I try to eliminate as many contradictions as possible, like in my own thinking, and that's impossible to do uh, like completely. We all contradict ourselves, but every year college football becomes more of a contradiction in terms of what it's, it's decision makers say and what's actually good for the sport. And, uh, and, and it just gets grosser. I'm going to talk here in a second about Mitch Daniels amazing Washington post column from the weekend. Mitch Daniels, I think he's still the Purdue president. Um, it's just like that, that becomes more of a contradiction saying, you know, the people running the NFL make it impossible for me to like the NFL while I like college football. So it seems to me that my choice is to give up on either 
or uh, to rationalize my way into talking about a little bit about both. And I'm choosing the latter because that sounds a lot, uh, well, less healthy, but more lucrative. You're really fired up about the NFL. Not really. I, I'm I, kind I, of terrified. Think, yeah. Um, but did you read, I, I know we were talking about it in our Slack room. Did you read the incredible Mitch Daniels column from, uh, the weekend? No, give, give me the, uh, give me the closest. I didn't watch the Super Bowl. I couldn't do it. It was hard. So have you, I don't even think, see, this is the problem. I work with a bunch of people like you and they're like, you, you can battle through it. Like whatever the worst possible Missouri situation in the world, you're like, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm still going to be able to write 2000 words about this. Whereas like, I'm going to be in the fetal position. So, um, I know, I know of what you're, of what you speak with Mitch Daniels and, and sort of the, um, what do we call, what do we call it? College football or, or no, sorry, college basketball slash the NCAA situation right now. Investigation. Quagmire, yeah, well, Quagmire, or just general controversy, you could say. But um, yeah, so I he, think, I think it's some other words. He wrote a letter to Condi Rice. That that was yes. the the whole premise of the piece because uh, when college athletics needs legitimacy, they only know one name. Uh, they're going to bring in Condoleezza Rice for everything, uh, which is just how did that happen? She she once said she liked college football, and therefore, like a year later, suddenly she was on the playoff committee, and, and it's just embarrassing. But anyway, it's the so, Bama. So his piece does focus primarily on college basketball, but it's all it's all college athletics, and it's all the same. And so she apparently has taken on. Let's see, she is chairing a commission to help reform college basketball. So imagine if you. Like so, the first like third or half of this piece that he wrote for the Washington Post, I'm reading almost, you now. almost perfectly summarizes the problems that college foot basketball is currently facing. Um, you know, the FBI is getting involved in all the under the table stuff with the AAU and shoe companies and all that. And one and done kind of creates this new layer of uh, well, not new. It's not new anymore, but it creates this layer of extra just. It, almost intentional sleaze because you know they're only going to be there one year, but they have to be there one year. They don't have any other options unless they're going to apparently play in Lithuania. Um, and you just, it's, it's kind of a weird place to be. And so he summarizes the problems. Great. And eventually we're going to have to bring in people who are under 60 years old to acknowledge that the definition of amateurism has created all of this and maybe go about redefining what amateurism is and who can make money off of what. That would solve a lot of problems. But Mitch Daniels defiantly moves forward, uh, basically does the equivalent of saying, I acknowledge that global warming is man-made and real, and we have to do something about it. Let's dump a bunch of ice cubes in the ocean. Um, He talks about, let's see, there's the year of readiness idea where all freshmen have to redshirt. Um, Because that would solve problems I, it, well among other things it would probably make the nba change its plan so maybe that's maybe that's uh worth it right there but there's the let's see there's the whole do it like baseball where you can go pro after high school or then have to stay in school three years i don't actually hate that um that would require the nba to let you come out come go pro after high school which is the problem we're talking about so that doesn't actually address that at all but here's my favorite um 
Another idea would be to allow players to depart early for the NBA, but the scholarships they received would be required to remain vacant for the balance of their four-year terms. Coaches who want to chase that next championship with full-time players masquerading as students could do so, but the following seasons might be tough with rosters filled with walk-ons. Yes, Mm. congratulations, Coach, for identifying talented players and landing them. You are now going to get fired in two years because you can't win. That sounds awesome. So I I just read this as you were kind of – I think it's just, it misses the point entirely. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, it zooms by like it is awe inspiring in its inability to even come close to reality. Like it was, it was incredible. And of course, all the the old hands, the <laughs> the nameless former sporting news writers and whatnot of the world, all just lapped it up. Said it was just it sure, was bold, the it was fiery and daring. So here's a here's a graph i'm going to read real fast when the fbi revealed its findings about the corrupt connections among shoe companies agents a few big-time college programs and coaches and the amateur athletic union or aau and then in parentheses he writes the first day increasingly looks like a misnomer increasingly uh in uh in parentheses no one near the sport was shocked. The existence of this part of the cesspool has been in plain view for years, and those in a position to stop the scandal spawned by the one-and-done era – he explains what a one-and-done is – have been either powerless to do so or actively interested in perpetuating the status quo. So let's back up for a second. The existence of this part of the cesspool. So it's a cesspool. Yes. Okay. What is the end goal of the shoe company, the agent's – at the AAU and the NBA. What is the end goal? To make money off of basketball, right? That's correct. Okay. Wow. All right. In order to do that, to make money off of basketball at different levels and tiers, they need basketball players. As far as I know, and I guess I am an expert in the field at this point when it comes to this particular corner <laughs> of college athletics, um, when the cesspool – is so insidious and so characterized as such because it's a cesspool because people are getting money. Basketball players got money. Yeah. Their families got money. Their families got cars. Their families got jobs. Now I understand, I understand that a black market has sprung up, which, you know, sort of as defined by the law is illegal. I get that part, right? The collusion aspect, but how did we get here? We got here through a completely Byzantine series of regulations. Yes. This is this is antiquated. This is and yet when diagnosing the, the, the disease, we continue to point at the, the inherent like his the conceit of his article is that the corruption lies in the basketball player going about the shortest path possible to making money. Right. That is the cesspool. Yes. Because, because this slapdick is uh, uh, governor of Indiana and uh, former governor, I'm sorry, and current president of, of Purdue. Yes. So the idea that he's speaking objectively here or, you know, as I, I, I'm, I'm a little shocked that the, the Washington Post gave him the platform. I guess I shouldn't be, but even in liberal and progressive corners of the media, we still paint this thing out as if the, the cash flow of money to players is morally wrong. Right. And I don't get it. Right. We like, are- I don't understand if this was some like, if this was some hardcore 
if, if, it's, if it was a group of hardcore conservatives, like, I don't understand why the media keeps doing this. The liberal media, right? Right. <laughs> the, the terrible media that's undermining the president and the, you know, the one that's like corrupting our country with progressive value. Like, they're still carrying this torch. Yes. I don't, I don't understand. What am I missing? Uh, the, well, I, I think, you know, every time this happens, it spells out the fact that, you know, we, we, in our little corner of the internet, uh, it's almost unanimous in, in our way of, of thinking about how amateur sports needs to change. Right. Uh, you know, we, we, uh, within SB nation and the people, our little circle on Twitter and everything else where it's all, it is almost literally unanimous. Like here, here are the things wrong with the sport. Um, we are not in power. We are nowhere near power and we have not been in power for the last, you know, 60 years. The people in that circle, uh, the little echo chamber there have, you know, they cannot and will not acknowledge that when 60 plus years ago, we decided that, you know, these college students can't make money. They have to be normal students. We're going to call them student athletes. We're not going to, they're not going to be employees. Uh, We're going to call them student athletes and we're going to get that there. Therefore we can get away with not insuring them for the, you know, injuries that might come about uh, when they are representing our university. 65 years later, that is still, that is defining the entire dialogue at the top of college athletics. Well, we obviously can't pay them. Therefore, the problem must be solved with this, 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 and this. And it, it, there's not a second of thought as to, wait, why Why can't they make money? And, and, and that's it. I mean, yes, this is a, an absolute gross uh, you know, quagmire of whatever words we want to use, uh, the way that companies and agents have to go, uh, to, to, you know, dark corners to pay these, uh, families. We don't have, it doesn't have to be that way. Like we don't have to make them employees. We don't have to make everybody employees of the university. I understand that there's a lot of chickiness with that, but let them make money off of their name, off of their likeness. Uh, if we want to regulate it, you know, so you can't make over this amount. That sounds a little what, like, uh, I don't know about pointless, but you know, I don't think it's necessary, but sure. If we want to put a cap on it or something, fine, let's talk about that. But we in 60 years haven't at the top level of, of college athletics, we've never gotten past that point of let's talk about it. Every, it, it, it is mind blowing. So it is so mind blowing and so gross at this point that it has driven me to not look as poorly on the NFL. Wow, that was the cutest. That, okay, all right, we got there. I'm, Boom, land, stick the landing. Okay. By the way, our, our Crimson Quarry, our, our Indiana SB Nation site, had a piece um, uh, a couple days ago, basically saying uh, the, the title is "Mitch Daniels' Views on College Basketball Should Embarrass Purdue University." That's of course they did, but God bless them. Right, like those they're kids. right in this case. Um, so we're, are we in the existential? Look, I was the one going through the issue. I know. And now it's, I feel like you've waded into the depression pool with me as as like, (laughs) at what point can you ignore all this stuff and continue to celebrate the aspects of the sport that elicit a positive feeling? And so we are kind of everybody. We are here Um, to fight for the soul of football. That's what, that's, that's what I say, even though we aren't, but it feels good to say that or think that way. Cause I, I mean, the easy answer would be, this is too gross. I'm going to find something else to like. Um, we haven't even talked about CTE yet. 
Right. I mean, there's, there are all these big things that we just are, are, are pecking away and pretending we don't understand the big issues around the sport. We do. And, and we could talk about them and, and it, it's, it, it just is impossible. So how do we dig ourselves out? Do we talk about the Sunbelt? <laughs> <laughs> the pureness, the pure, the purity of college football is found in Georgia, Southern Texas state and Louisiana Lafayette, the three teams that I've previewed this week uh, at SB nation. If by purity you mean assiness, then you are correct, sir. So Georgia Southern kicked off the uh, the 2018 team previews. Um, I retweeted your uh, your promotion of the of Georgia Southern as number one, and and sort of tongue in cheek said something about like, "Hey, how's that FBS transition going?" Oh wait, you're first in Bill's preview, not too well. And, and you of got course, lit up. I got lit up because I have a, a little bit extra exposure in Georgia Southern Twitter. Um, the best part is there were a bunch of people on Georgia Southern Twitter who were mad at me who were like, he doesn't know what he's talking about, <laughs> um, which I enjoyed that. Um, the Okay, so the operating um, argument here, and we can apply this to, I think, a lot of other schools as we march along through the offseason. I, I really do think like th- there's several in the Power Five. There's several in the mid-majors. Schools, I don't want to make this just a Georgia Southern conversation, okay? Because we're going to talk about like, you know, other programs like ULL, the next one, for instance, a completely different situation that you have a highly successful coach, creates a small renaissance in your program, and then sort of just peters out. But in Georgia Southern's case, everyone is writing everything off as a bad coaching hire. Wipe our hands clean, bad coaching hire, next coach do better, the end. Technically, on a very, very high level, that's true. Make a good hire and a lot of problems fix themselves. But how did that starting to come, uh, how did you lose your last coach? How did this bad hire come about in the first place? Those are issues. Exactly. Yeah. So I'm starting to look at programs, especially ones with a low margin for error or an incredibly overexposed margin of error, like when Florida hires Will Muschamp or um, I'm trying to think of a better example than that, or at least a more recent example of a power program. I mean, right now people are going to ask as we write this, LSU is getting beat up on, on national signing day. And so people are going to ask this question again about Ed Orgeron. So on both of those ends of the spectrum, they're very different, but I'm starting to think a bad coaching hire is a bad coaching hire. You've always said this, right? And a good coaching hire is going to mask a lot and solve a lot immediately. However, a bad coaching hire at this in this age, a truly bad one. Now, I should clarify. You and I talk about the coaching cycle and we say like, all right, there's only X amount of good coaches out there. You're going to hire a coach. He's going to go seven and five for three years and you guys are going to get mad about it. That's not a bad coaching hire, okay? You, are you okay with that in terms of def, like definition? If he because he was successful, it is by definition a successful hire. Or if he was fired because he was eight and four, I don't think that that's right. – you know, we're, we're, we're in a ludicrous phase of the sport. I'm talking about a bad coaching hire which Tyson Summers was like an inarguably empirically bad coaching hire for Georgia Southern, right? They He won how many games as a head coach? One, two? He won his first three, and then I think two others total. Yes. So when that happens, would you not as a fan, and I don't, like, if you're listening to this, I don't want you to think about Georgia Southern unless you are a Georgia Southern fan. Would you not evaluate and have concerns about the internal structure and system of your program and not just feel good because you got a new guy in there, right? This goes like the old like who watches the watchman kind of feeling of like this is the same AD president board that hired Tyson Summers. So you all tell me why it's going to be different, Georgia Southern. And also in this case, requisite weekly mention, you have to look at, well, 
Willie Fritz did not leave Georgia Southern for a Power Five job. Right. He left for Tulane. Yeah. The money is not that much. The, the money is better because Georgia Southern, one of their issues was the fact that they didn't understand they had to act and and really put themselves out there like like a big boy should. And in terms of the transition, they thought everything was going to be a little bit more kind of old school than, you know, the D2 or FCS life that they came from. One double A before someone corrects me. Um, but jumping to Tulane is alarming. I think it was alarming at the time. Um, I think it stays alarming because Fritz is a very successful, obviously he's an innovator. We love him on this show. Then they make a really tragically bad hire in place of that. And now they've gone and appointed an assistant from that staff to take over. So now, now Bill, you tell me. This is all for naught, and was it just a bad hire and everything's going to be fine and they're going to be 10 and 2? Right. It's kind of like macro versus micro. Macro level, a lot is alarming right now. But like micro, it can still work out if, if it just if it happens, you know, if, if uh, Lunsford just happens to be a good coach. And he really could be. And, you know, if we just base it on what he's done so far, I kind of like what I've seen. Because, first of all, hiring Bob DeBess um, from New Mexico as your offensive coordinator when you're a quote-unquote option school, like he had one of the more intriguing option offenses in recent memory, um, you know, Willie Fritz aside. And uh, like that, you know, so from an identity standpoint, that hire made a whole lot of sense and I like it. Um, He eventually it took a little while, but he eventually started making his own hires elsewhere. Um, Who was his, uh, I'm blanking on who his coordinator, defensive coordinator hire is, but he started to bring in his own guys. Uh, They're sensible. The uh, one thing that Georgia Southern fans can lean on is the fact that part of the reason they were so terrible this last year is because they were maybe the youngest team in FBS. Now, part of the reason they were one of the youngest teams is because of all the crap that happened a couple years before. But uh, Shy Wirtz, the quarterback, could be a good option quarterback. They still have uh, two or three interesting uh, running backs. They redshirted Summers to his credit, didn't panic and start ripping red shirts off. They have a, a few interesting red shirt running backs. Um, they return almost their entire offensive line. They return almost their entire defense. Like whatever they were last year at the end of the season, when they were clearly a step better on, under Lunsford, they, you know, he, he takes over and they immediately get uh, kind of ripped apart by who like App State and Troy or whatever. But then uh, they take out a whole bunch of frustrations on South Alabama. They beat Louisiana Lafayette. Uh, they finished the year in much better shape than they were midseason. So combine that with some good coordinator hires and a lot of continuity and like a top half of the Sun Belt recruiting class, you can talk yourself into that. You know, th- you know, he's made the right moves so far. Um, that, and maybe that that's a sign that he's going to, to grow into this job quickly and, and he's going to end up being a very good hire, but yeah, on a micro level or macro level, hiring the assistant of the guy who just w- lost 13 out of 15 games and got fired and was overwhelmed and clearly wasn't the right choice for the job hiring his assistant, uh, because he won two games out of like six clearly optics there suggest that could still be problematic. Billy Napier. Yes. New head coach of the U- University of Louisiana or Louisiana or I don't know. I'm tired of trying to figure it out. Raging you Cajuns, okay. yet, I'm not, I cannot, You're just, not fi- you? cannot okay. commit myself to saying cool. that they're just Louisiana. Maybe it's the fact that I s- sympathize and I've interacted with people at UL Monroe. Uh, yeah. But that just seems ridiculous and I just can't make myself do it. You don't want to say Louisiana. Go Cajuns. I'm just going to say go Cajuns. Billy Napier comes in. This job was hot. I'm I'm not even 100% sure why it was as hot as it was. I think 
Um, a lot of young coaches are now looking at just just geography more than anything else now on where's that first head coaching job going to be in relation to talent. I think that's the number one thing. And, you know, it's hard to argue when you're on I-10. It really is, as long as you're east of, like, uh, El Paso, I guess. <laughs> um, you know, when you're on I-10, although if you go west, you get to California, and there's good talent there, too. Yeah. It's, a, it's a good place to be um outside of the hinterlands you know yeah, what's, in, in the, what's the old tidbit sunbelts cl- or uh el paso is closer to la than like dallas or something like that yeah it's true um billy napier comes in this is a job that a lot of people think should be a springboard type of job um it was supposed to be a springboard job for his predecessor mark hudspeth and that never really worked out the way that i think ull expected or hud was hoping um it's a good job they need to probably address some facility stuff and they, you know, we joke about the branding, but they do need to sort of get a handle on the branding. I will say from personal experience in the state, a lot of people attend the university of Louisiana at Lafayette. It, they, they draw a lot of kids. It's a, it's a pretty big school. They have a natural exposure that way. And it, you know, whether you give a rip at all about Sunbelt football, there's like, you know, you probably have a, know a kid from a high school, whatever that went there. And so they, they have potential to jump up, right? They have, they, they have as, they have as much potential you would think to be a, a Sunbelt darling is like app state or, or anybody else. So the now yeah, in, 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 putting that together is sort of like the old classic riddle. So the, and one of the main problems, one of the main obstacles to putting that together. I, so that, that USA today finances database that they post once a year, I, I understand like the, problematic side of it and how it doesn't show everything and among other things that doesn't show you know private schools and whatnot um yeah but i kind of I, I like to refer to it just to kind of get an idea of the totem pole so to speak and the you know the, the proportions involved here so what is this last year that they have i guess it was 2015-16 the last year they posted um revenue in the Sun Belt. Uh, in, incoming revenue without looking at whatever total expenses, total allocated and all that stuff, just the pure revenue number um, for Appalachian state uh, tops in the sun, or excuse me, um, Arkansas state was tops in the Sun Belt at 43 million. Louisiana Lafayette was uh, 25 million. Poor Louisiana Monroe was 14 million. Um, oh my God. It, it's, they are the bottom two in the, in the conference and at least without like Arkansas Little Rock doesn't have football and was only about two and a half million behind Louisiana Monroe. Um, that's, that's, it's, it's scary. And so like when we talk about potential, obviously talent and fan support, they're above the Sun Belt average every single year in terms of attendance. Um, they have a lot going for them, but, uh, the, the the money is always going to be a struggle and it's going to, that obviously decreases your margin for error. And, and, and HUD in this case, Mark Hudspeth, I, I wrote it in the preview, like in about 2013, I'm not sure there was a single mid-major coach that I was higher on than, than Mark Hudspeth. I love that dude. When it looked like after 2012, Missouri was, you know, the Gary Pinkles on, on shaky ground in Missouri. I was like, man, Hudspeth, hire him. I'm, I'm, I'm in, you know, um, and he stayed too long. Like the, whatever the jobs didn't come about at the right time, the, the NCAA started finding some test taking issues with some of the recruits. Um, he never specifically got nailed. Some of, of his assistants did, uh, they, they were kind of under a cloud for a year. Yeah, that, it, um, it bridges over into the Ole Miss scandal. Oh, actually, nice. there's a couple of what individuals doesn't? that are involved. What in doesn't both? bridge over into the Ole Miss scandal? Um, but no, they, they, 
That's an existential question. Recruiting, he, he signed the top recruiting class in the Sun Belt twice, uh, and then they were like ninth last year. Like the, the talent level was starting to dissipate. It's just a, it's a hard job, and it remains hard. And that's you know that's what we always talk about with like you know from everybody from these jobs to like Jim Grobe at Wake Forest and all that other stuff. Like you, certain jobs never get easier, and you always have to overachieve. And he slipped just a little bit, and Louisiana Lafayette then slipped a lot. Um, all that said, I love Napier. I love the Napier hire. Um, I think that could be a very, very good hire for them. Very, very good resume. Um, yes. Ex-quarterback at Furman. He's from Georgia. He knows the South really well. Climbed up the um, climbed up the initial ranks like out of QC and GA stuff through Clemson um, and then was at Colorado State briefly, but really kind of cut his teeth in big-time football as a, as a position coach at Alabama. Yeah. And then was just a one year OC out at Arizona State, but that's that that's a pretty nice resume for I think he's 38, 30, yep. you know, 38 yeah, years old. So he's like, coached for each of the last two national champions, and I mean Todd Graham among his all of his flaws, his personal likability, and all that, he knows how to hire as good assistant coaches, and he he tends to uh, teach them pretty well. I mean, he takes over. He took over for Mike Norvell, and Mike Norvell's got a really great program in Memphis right now that he's starting to make his own, and not just Justin Fuente. So, yeah, he comes in, um, looks really good on paper. Um, it, it, I wrote about this last year with the LSU situation. They're trying to fight out the Texas schools and do this whole right. United Louisiana thing. If, if that's worth anything more than lip service, you have to think a program like ULL is probably the biggest, maybe Tulane, I guess. But it, it, there's at least some. I think compared to ULL and Tulane, there's a pretty big gap in admissions. Like this, if you can really do that and push the two stars and three stars to ULL instead of some out of state school, then that's a huge, huge win for for the Cajuns. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, hitch my wagon to what LSU is going to do to help us in some sort of trickle down proposal, but. Um, increasing your profile and being on good terms with the school right down I-10 is definitely helpful in my opinion. Yeah, you would assume that being uh, LSU's AAA squad is not the worst thing in the world. Um, I know one of the no, no. I know one of the emerging storylines for signing day that I picked up on this morning is that LSU's class fell apart, but um, that's still not a bad place to be. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, all right, we have one uh, one team left as as we record this that you've already uh, unveiled, nice. and then uh, give us give me a quick update on the schedule. We'll go through Sun Belt for what the next week and change. Yeah, there are, there are only two, ten teams in the Sun Belt now because uh, they you know got rid of two. Um, my beloved Aggies, my beloved Aggies. I love by the way on Twitter like twice in the last week um, somebody saw like a shirt or a hat at like I don't know a belk somewhere and it was New Mexico State and they sent me a picture of it and then somebody drove by uh, New Mexico State Stadium there in Las Cruces for whatever reason they sent me a picture of it it, it really is like now I am SB Nation's resident New Mexico State blogger um, and I and I very much encourage it and I appreciate it I'm sure everyone on staff is excited to hear that <laughs> so yeah we'll talk about texas state in a minute but the other teams coming up coastal carolina tomorrow um joe mogley is back uh ulm on friday uh they had a very good offense last year south alabama on monday georgia state on tuesday troy on wednesday so that's the schedule between now and uh the next podcast no no wait we're probably recording thursday next week so thursday is yes that's state. true i'll be in new york working on project project x so we'll have a little bit of a delay but we'll have plenty more of the sunbelt to speak about um you want to go to questions well, we got, we, we got to address Texas State out of fairness. Oh, no. I forgot Texas State. So did college football. Tell me about him, Bill. 
Uh, well, so one of the assistants that I talked to periodically, um, I, like he 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 was uh, hired by Everett Withers uh, as as Withers was coming in that first year. Uh, I talked to him before the season started in 2016. Uh, Withers was first season, and he was like, "Yeah, we've got like 50 scholarship guys. This is going. This season's going to be a nightmare." Um, I. And it was. They were by far the worst team in FBS that first year. I couldn't really hold it against Withers because they knew exactly, apparently, what they were getting into. Uh, by the next year, they only had something. Where, where are the numbers here? By the beginning of 2017, uh, the second year in charge, they had barely like 40 guys who weren't freshmen. Uh, they were up to uh, 65 guys overall. Um, so they just, they signed the number one class in the Sunbelt last year. They signed a, a like top five ish class this year, but this is the first year under Withers where they're actually going to be somewhat close to 85 scholarship guys. Um, and it's amazing what that can do for your program when you actually have the, when you're, when you don't have an FCS team's allotment of, uh, scholarships. So they're going to return just about everybody except their quarterback. Damian Williams transferred from Mississippi State, came in last year, wasn't all that great, uh, but he was kind of a stopgap because they had signed four three-star quarterbacks last season. Um, Two of them played at least a little bit, uh, two red-shirted. It's going to be a big free-for-all, but if they find a quarterback, they've got a couple of good uh, running backs. They've got every offensive lineman. They've got almost every defender coming back. Um, the, The hope here, like they were still pretty bad last year, not quite as bad. But the hope here is just that when you actually have depth and, and, you know, guys competing for spots instead of being handed spots in the starting lineup, that's when the product really starts to take shape. So um, if 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 Withers is going to be able to do anything at Texas State, it might not happen this year, but we're at least going to know it's happening. Like the first two years, there was just no hope. So now there might be hope, but we'll see. I don't have much to add other than the fact that I mean, if if someone gets a year negative one, it might be a, it might right. be Withers in this situation. I don't even think year zero applied when I I met him at a Sun Belt Media Day a couple of years ago, and he was just like, "Look, <laughs> this is gonna be." It was positive, I guess, but I mean, it was just very matter of like, "Look, this is we literally inherited a scorched piece of earth." Right. With no it's, resources. It's funny how quickly things can turn. I mean, Francione was the guy before him. And for a few years, like he had them over 500 at one point, um, it seemed like things were starting to take shape. And I mean, I've said it before. So like, Sam Marcos, like that, that is pretty much the perfect startup. If you're a Texas school wanting to move up to FBS, like you're in the middle of everything. Yeah. Um, and Francione had it going. Then suddenly he didn't. Like it, it seemed like almost like a George O'Leary situation where you get to the end of your career and you just don't have the energy or the, the, the attention span and things start to slip. And when they slip, they slip really, 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 really quickly. <laughs> I uh, think that would be a fun story, honestly, is if you and I talk to, if these coaches would be willing to, it's a lot of ego involved and I respect yeah. that, but like what happened where you just, you just laid it down. I mean, um, you know, Spurrier's June Jones. The one, yeah. June Jones is a great example. Spurrier's the one that we talk about the most, but you know, I think to go back to Bob Stoops, I think that's what he was so terrified of was having that seven and five year where there were obvious deficiencies. And on top of that, a, a, a less than, you know, a less than comparable amount of talent coming in for the following year. He, I just, he didn't want to be, you know, brought out behind the shed and shot. Right. He just wanted to go <laughs> ahead and go out on top. I get right. it. It's, um, we talked about it at the time. Coaches who don't. 
we talked about it at the time, like Spurrier got kind of lit up because he was quote unquote ditching his team. But I think, I mean, I said it at the time and I believe it even more now, like when you know, you don't have it, you can't fake it. And there was just no point in continuing because no, Tuberville's another one. Yeah. <laughs> Tuberville's another one in Cincinnati where they were just like, yep, this is, this is just not, it's not what it was. And it's not even what it was a year ago. I think it's not so much that a man at the end of his career, maybe, maybe aspects of, the politics and the recruiting and that kind of stuff have passed you by. I think that's totally acceptable and to be expected. It's just that like, how does it always happen so damn quick? Yeah, it really does. Why, why is that fall off so precipitous? We see, we, I guess we're talking about it because we're talking about the G5, the bottom of the G5 where a lot of this, like, you know, a lot of this happens. A lot of these guys go down there for one last glory run. And I think that trend has been identified by a lot of athletic directors and search firms because you're seeing less and less of that, of those of those coaches getting that that um, that silver age chance in their career, the Franciones, the Larry Cokers, Houston. Houston. I mean, I think it's it's one of the reasons why Les Miles is still not coaching. Yeah, it's a big big reason why, honestly. Um, and it's funny because it's a contradiction too. Like we we talk about you know before how you know especially in the off season the head coach really isn't doesn't have his finger on the pulse of everything. It's, it's the strength coach. It's the other guys. You don't actually see these kids very much. And it's kind of funny, like balancing that with the thought that, you know, when it slips, when the head coach's attention span slips, everything falls apart immediately. Um, it's kind of, it's, it's, it's two very different thoughts, but they're both true in this case. It's weird. It's, um, we always swing through like we, we we go back and forth on the pendulum of like what are you actually responsible for where like it does the buck stop with you on this this and this right and we, we, we 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 are we have a bad habit in the media of doing that where sometimes it's all you and sometimes it's there's no way we could expect you to know all this kind of stuff so right yeah no I, I i i talk about that a lot like you know he's in control of this but he's very much not in control of all of these other things but then yeah it, when he when the head coach slips there's no way of hiding it. Is there anyone that you would peg for a future, I don't know, precipitous drop that you can think of? Well, you do figure at some point, I mean, well, if we're looking at the mid-major ranks, so to speak, especially the, you know, the Mac, the Conference USA and Sunbelt, the bottom three, uh, there aren't that many young coaches involved. Joe Moglia uh, is is quite old, um, and we'll see exactly how that situation takes shape now that he's back. Um, but I'm scrolling through names here. Like most of them, Doug Martin's pretty has been around a while at New Mexico State, obviously. Um, uh, you know, burgeoning national power, New Mexico State. Uh, Terry Bowden at Akron is is getting up there. I'm really just looking for old guys, not necessarily making predictions of any kind. Uh, but but obviously he's getting up there. Um, Frank Solich, uh, you know, is is apparently getting better with age, but eventually, in theory, that's well. He really he defied this idea. This yeah, concept. he's the exception uh, to the that proves the rule, I guess. But otherwise, I mean, Butch Butch Jones. Butch Jones at FIU is is interesting. I wasn't sure if he had anything in the tank to begin with, and they had a, a pretty experienced roster that he took advantage of this year. Very much less experienced, and we'll see what happens there. He's recruiting okay. Uh, in terms of, of of older coaches, well, Dana Dimmel at UTEP just showed up, but he's automatically one of the older ones. So, yeah, I mean, maybe those are the, the no candidates. No Dana Dimmel. I just think that program had nothing to sell anyone. Yeah. It was, it was, you might as well take, yeah, sorry. You might as well take the the guy with the, with the Bill Snyder DNA. It was open for so long that several people that work in college football forgot that it was open. (laughs) 
Like that was that, that's about as bad a thing as I could say about a current op- like a, about a job is that people literally forgot there was a vacancy. Yeah. Um, quick transition in here to to hashtag Ask PAPM. Yes. By the way, if you have questions for us, uh, please go on Twitter uh, at underscore uh, at SBN underscore Bill C at thirty eight Godfrey. Use the hashtag uh, Ask PAPN. Um, kind of related, a little bit of a pivot. At Kevin on the Moon says. Gus Malzahn signed a seven-year extension in December, and Nick Saban is 66 years old. Who is more likely at their current position in seven years? Seven years. Seven years. Neither is the answer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, the answer, if we're talking seven years, the answer is, like, nobody is likely to be in the same jobs. A few of them three, will be, but... Three is my... Three is my question. <laughs> yeah. Three. Um, I mean, Saban, honestly, like... Uh, I, I, do, I doubt it happens, but I feel more comfortable with that than I do with Malzahn, who ends up under fire every single damn year. Um, I would assume that Saban is the slightly more likely of the two. I would say Saban just because I don't see I, – I, it, it really is – God, I hate feeding this narrative. It really is a Bear Bryant situation now, and like I think if the shark stops swimming, the shark dies. And <laughs> yeah. there's just no drop-off. There's no drop off. If we want to have a conversation and, and Georgia wins in overtime instead of Alabama and they're in the process of putting together the number one class in the country and they're redefining things, then okay. Well, you know, I get that. But we're not there yet. It may still not happen at all. Other other schools have beaten Alabama in recruiting and not been able to put it together in right. terms of winning and winning and appearing in national championships with such consistent regularity. Yeah. So you have to go save and also Auburn's crazy. So, you know, <laughs> you can't, you can't ignore one key thing. <clears throat> Auburn yeah. crazy. Um, so at David, oh, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. I'll, I'll do my next at David M. Aldridge. You often talk about an administration needing to take necessary steps to ensure a coach or pro, a coach and program succeeds. Aside from money, what do you mean by that? What is a healthy level of an administration's involvement in the football program? This is a great question, and it's really yeah, it hard is. to answer. It's a really hard answer, and I've, I'm trying to find answers for that to write about it, and it's just hard. Like it's um, often, you know, if you go back to the Mike Gundy piece from last year, um, in that instance, like Mike Holder is one of the most respected ads in the country at this point. He's a very he's he's regarded as a quote unquote coach friendly ad, um, and really that coach friendliness comes about in that he just runs interference. Like he never lets any sort of public narrative build about you know I'm losing faith in my guy. He's on the hot seat, etc. He runs interference and said no, he's our guy. Sometimes so sometimes it's a public thing like that. Sometimes well f- frequently it's money uh, and giving the coach pretty toys to recruit with. Um, but you know, maybe it's, it's the assistant coach salary pool. Maybe it's uh, a lot of it is money, but the public side I think is, is another thing that we maybe don't talk about enough. So I think David's question, when he said aside from money, I think he's, he, I know don't look at, don't look at money as just the budget of the athletic department. It's the way in which the money's used and money from outside as well. So, uh, I'm really not talking about bagman stuff here, but when you have a healthy, <laughs> I'm not when you, but when you have a healthy environment in and around a program, such as like corporate advertising or just booster involvement with spending on uh, projects and events that bring a certain energy and activity to a campus and expose your brand in ways that you're not allowed to, 
I think that helps coaches like that. They like a healthy booster culture when they're winning. Obviously, they hate booster culture when they're losing. Um, facilities, and I don't know, again, if that if it falls into money. Um, facilities almost, it's it, what the facilities do and how they actually impact a kid, I think, is meaningless at this point. It's just become a phobia or a tick or we don't want to fall behind. Yeah, superstition of if you're not building, you're 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 falling behind. You literally have to have something under construction at all times. Like I've had multiple athletic directors just say, like, I've, we have to be built. We have to be doing something. We have to have a project on the books for every year, or, or else what are we doing? We're doing something wrong. It's um, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. But it's become it's just become this fear that everyone involved in big time college athletics has about, you know, uh, maintaining a status quo when there really is no status quo. Like Alabama has some nice stuff. I don't even know if they have the nicest of everything. Um, and it, it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. And, and you know, a, a particular kind of training room is never going to win you that many more games. Right. Now, I've had arguments with coaches before about like, you know, if we knock down this wall in this hallway, <laughs> no, I'm serious. We no, no, knock no, down no. this wall in this hallway and we build this facility and it's all in one building. It's going to save them. You know, we've done efficiency studies and it saves these players two and a half minutes between their class and when they're coming in for treatment. And I'm like, Jesus, like, okay. I mean, that's my, that's micro, not macro, but you know, yeah, no, there's serious there's money involved to do that. There's definitely, uh, you know, as few wasted steps as possible out of practice. So I definitely understand like we get this number of minutes with these kids. We're going to do as much as possible. I, I get that. That's, right. That kind of makes sense. Um, but you're right. The, their use of the word fear is probably pretty good here because it really is like with the, with the size of the weight room, you just don't want to be the one school that a kid visits and walks into the right weight room and goes, Oh, huh. Like you, you just want to make sure that yours is <laughs> for lack of a better term. Yours is as big as everybody else's. Um, oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's all it comes down to. And no one's ever been able to truly, you know, really show the yield off of that. And it looks more and more embarrassing as we have, yep. you know, flat panel HDTVs in Texas's locker room and <laughs> you know, holograms in the waterfalls at Alabama and all that kind of stuff. So, um, so I still really don't feel like we answered David's question. Um, it's an energy, it's an activity, it's, um, you know, there's a, there's an, a lot of marketing, um, uh, attention that's paid towards how big is your uh, how big is your fan base both in registered and active alumni as well as graduates in the communities and mm. also the communities that you want to recruit in and how big is the sidewalk alumni community what kind of media exposure are you getting in a market um, is there any way to increase the media exposure in particular markets if if you're trying to reach out and let's say you're an SEC school and you touch one major market like how do you do better in Atlanta or Memphis <clears throat> or Birmingham yeah um, so it's, is, is the school going to do what it takes there? Like, you know, this is an anecdote and just nothing more. The last five to eight years, Clemson's visibility literally through billboards and marketing. <laughs> yeah. and, and like when you go to Atlanta, you see a lot of Clemson now and that's, that's not, it's not on accident. So it's, it's a, it's a pastiche, David, to, to answer your question. Yeah. I like to think that there are hidden answers with certain things that if you if you ask the right people you'll figure out like what's the real answer here but a lot of times the yeah. real answer is the obvious one and and it really is money, how much money are you raising and how are you how effectively are you spending it and then and then there's the public cover idea too um yeah definitely definitely money i think it's the creative it's the volume and the creativity with your money yeah. how's that yeah there we go uh two questions here one really quickly just because i love this is funny in a lot of ways. This comes from our, our friend, uh, Twitter name, OU sucks, uh, Twitter handle, 
Florida Georgia line sucks. So a lot of things suck. Um, his question is, this may be a dumb question. And if it is, I blame my youth, uh, youth being everything sucks. Uh, is Mac Brown really one of the best coaches ever? The use of the word really here kind of cracked me up. Like, cause I don't think we've ever talked about him being one of the best coaches ever. Oh, there's no um, way we have. But full cast, the full cast makes fun of him more than we do. So I know that it's not him. And, I know Bud would never say anything right. because he was always a terrible evaluator of talent. <laughs> so, um, but he won a hell of a lot of games at a couple different schools. Like he he went to Tulane and actually built something interesting there. Left for North Carolina, built a top ten program there. Uh, left for Texas, built a top five program there, and eventually secured a national title. Almost won another one. That's quote unquote best coaches ever. No, not like top 10 or 20 ever or whatever like that. But I've one of the best coaches of the last 30 years. I, I would say that for sure. I mean, I, I understand every single one of his weaknesses. I, I complain about every single broadcast he's on and how many times he says the word momentum, but it, it, this, the, the record speaks for itself. He was very good at multiple schools. I think that, um, I think it's okay to, um, value what a coach accomplished and also understand the space and time in which he accomplished that thing in is no longer comparable to where we're at right now. Sure. Yeah. How's that? Yeah, there you go. Uh, and he got old. I mean, he got old and started viewing the game as an old coach often does. Um, and it kind of slipped him by a little bit, but his success is undeniable. He just maybe stayed a little too long. Uh, now here's a direct polar opposite question that I also wanted to get to our friend, Timothy McPherson at GT option for life. Yes. Um, what do you think of the Nate Woody hire at Georgia tech? Most fans, including myself are optimistic. GT has lacked an identity on defense. So Woody's one gap three, four scheme is enticing and seems to have been effective at app state. Uh, I love the hire. Like we, Paul Johnson might be, you know, we were talking about energy earlier. He's never really seemed particularly high energy, but he needs probably a pretty good season this fall. We kind of thought maybe he was going to retire last year, um, but he returns almost literally everybody on offense and like, a, you know, a top receiver and alignment are the two guys gone. Otherwise everybody's back. And it, Nate Woody's awesome. Like what he can do, what the culture will allow him to do defensively there. Uh, we have no idea. You know, some guys, you know, uh, Cliff Kingsbury, we, we were raving about Cliff Kingsbury's uh, defensive coordinator, uh, your boy, um, because they almost had a top 90 defense this year or almost top 80, whatever it was. <laughs> like we set the bar in different places for different schools and we don't know what's possible at Georgia tech, but there's no question. Nate Woody was an awesome defensive coordinator at Appalachian state. And he, you know, they had a lightweight three, four defense that flustered just about everybody. You had to have Georgia talent to really just push them over. And, um, yeah. and you know, most of the people, a few people on Georgia tech schedule have Georgia talent like Georgia, but uh, most don't. And so if, if, you know, he's allowed to do what he needs to do, he could be pretty good. Do we think Ted roof that we, like that, that marriage ended because of, of scheme? I don't, I don't think it was because of philosophy either. No. Um, this is Johnson's fifth defensive coordinator in his 10 years at Georgia Southern or I'm so, oh, sorry. Oh, <laughs> in Georgia tech, Georgia tech. Um, it's his fifth in 10 years. And I think that speaks more to probably an issue of recruiting the talent. Um, I like the hire. I think it's fun and different. Um, I don't necessarily know if, if you bring in uh, the, the attacking, I love every time you pull up a three, four is always attacking. Did you know that? I guess a four, three is sleepy, <laughs> but a three, four is attacking. 
Um, yeah, run a three four. Um, I guess because you're trying to recruit tweeners now, or more tweeners than less traditional defensive, like like you know elite defensive ends that are hand in the dirt guys that are being scooped up by the bigger schools. Is that what we're saying? Like, what? Sure. I mean, why are we excited? Those, uh, you know, 245-pounders, kind of tweener guys that yeah. can run real fast and attack the quarterback, that, those will do a lot better in a 3-4. But I mean, uh, yeah, I, you're not going to sit here and explain to me like, oh, well, you know, it's an attacking 3-4 scheme, so therefore it's going to uh, just instantly generate more turnovers and more opportunities for the offense, which is a ball control, you know, machine anyway, and therefore it's a better hire. I think it's interesting, and uh, hopefully he lets him do his thing, but – I think there's an there's sort of an issue at Georgia Tech of energy and what are they bringing in and recruiting and talent that supersedes any one coordinator hire. And I mean, he, he is an offensive guy and he's rarely had great defenses anywhere. Um, so, you know, sometimes when one when a head coach favors one side of the ball, it does rub off and, and oh, it's I hard. Think, to I think in personnel it rubs off. I think, I think it's a, it may be a culprit here as well. So good luck to Nate Woody. I'm super optimistic for him. Um, <laughs> at Yellow Jacket, how's that for a transition, even though he has an Ole Miss avatar? Bill, uh, hmm. do you differentiate stats based on scheme spread three, four, or do you think it could gain any insight or are play calls and personnel too much of a factor to glean from any insight from that? Can I answer this for you? Sure. No, because Washington. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So if, if, when he's talking about insight, if he's talking about like quality or something like that, or, you know, anything of that nature now, it, it's, it's really, yeah, it's school specific and all, and all that. But if we're talking about like, um, personality stats or footprint stats, whatever we want to call that little collection. Yeah. There are differences between three, four and four, three that, that would probably bleed off. It just, there are even more, you know, you'll see a lot in terms of zone versus man, you know, man will have better, maybe on average, better efficiency numbers, worse big play prevention versus zone being the opposite and all that. So you can start to differentiate things in certain ways. The spread, he, he mentioned spread too. Yeah. Obviously I, I, what is I, that? Yeah. Well, the way I tend to, from a stat standpoint, the way I tend to measure it is the whole, like what percentage of the tackles against you are, are solo tackles. Um, cause when you do that and LSU's at the very bottom and a bunch of big 12 schools are at the top, you kind of, you understand that that's an interesting personality stat to track, but yeah, there's, if we're talking about anything beyond just, hmm, that's kind of interesting, or that tells us a little more about personality. It's not going to tell us much about quality, uh, that the overall numbers don't. Well, that's fair. I made the Washington joke because a lot of, I mean, a lot of teams are going to show so much variety in the course of a single game that right, it would right. be extremely hard to, to. Right. There's a reason qualify. coaches go out of their way to say we're multiple, we're multiple because they, they don't <laughs> want to be pigeonholed. Oh man. Um, uh, just real quickly at MS casts, uh, says, I can't believe you didn't remind Bama that they hired Mike Price. Uh, I don't remember when I was supposed to do that, but Bama we, last week we were, we were briefly talking about the stuff that happened before Saban and the number of bad hires. They oh, made. I, said I, Frank I, and Dubose. Yeah. We, we've talked about price before. I, I think we did, we get a mulligan on that one. I thought of him and just let it slip by cause we were going on something else. So I think we've, I think we've earned our Mike price credit around here. I mean, I'll make fun of Mike price as much as I can or not. not I'm not make fun of Mike, make fun of Alabama for hiring him. I'm sorry. Uh, oh, and, and by the way, uh, to address an issue from last week, uh, you asked for receipts uh, regarding uh, Penn State people really honestly thinking that Tommy Stevens should be the quarterback over Chase McSorley. Oh, my God. These people exist. We got receipts. They exist. We got receipts. It is mortifying. Absolutely mortifying. I, the problem is I still don't believe it. I, I asked for further information. And I still – I guess it just it, – it's so strange. 
on its own, but I don't think if you gave me context, it would be any less dumb. Like if they're like, well, here's the thing. Tommy Stevens came in and he was highly recruited and a lot of, you know, a lot of fans because of his raw athleticism. Nope, nope, nope. Still stupid. Still stupid. Still stupid. Still stupid. He's taller than Trace McSorley. That's all that he's got on Chase McSorley. At Didn't the I say this last week that tall people yes. were coordinated, that I fell up a flight of stairs recently? Like, I just – here's the deal. If if Penn State were in a situation in which they would have replaced Joe Moorhead with someone who came in and they were matter-of-fact and said, hey, we're going to run something different than what Joe Moorhead ran. One, that'd be kind of a dumb idea because Trace McSorley is back. Very dumb right? idea. But they didn't. They went with Ricky Ronnie, a guy who's been with Franklin for an extremely long amount of time and a guy who's going to take a large, if not all, portions of Moorhead's book, at least the stuff that they ran – in the happy Valley for trace and, and work off of that first. So that being said, trace is your best option. Trace is always going to be your best option unless they were to suddenly scrap everything and bring in an entire new system that somehow exploited one or two things that Stevens, that you think Stevens has. Right. It's you think Stevens has. Cause I, like McSorley was a better, uh, was a more highly touted recruit. He is one of the five or six best quarterbacks in the freaking country. No matter what system you bring in, McSorley's the option. He's the senior. He's the proven guy. Like, I, I don't know what else to say. Like I, my, my team has drew lock for another year and that was exciting. I'd take trace McSorley. Wow. There you go. I, I, I mean, I, I, I understand he threw 10 interceptions. I understand that he makes a couple of mistakes per game. Well, tough. He, he, what returning quarterback right now in college football are you, are you taking instead of him? I, I mean, I'm sure they exist, but I, I'm waiting. <laughs> right. I, I, I fear I'm like, I'm sure I'm forgetting about somebody, but he's one, like I'll, I'll like if you had to six. start, if you had to start the 2018 season with a quarterback right now, McSorley or? Uh, we got idiots arguing they shouldn't start for his own team, and we're trying to figure out whether or not there's another another kid in the country that you would start. I would start right now Trace McSorley over Jake Fromm. Yeah, I mean, if you have sure, – I'm trying to think. Like, that's a, that's an argument for system. Um, but even Jake Fromm's not going to have the running backs. Well, to next me, that's an argument for experience. Yeah. Okay. Like, I'm I'm looking through the list of like best passer ratings from from last year. I mean, well, first of all, I mean Khalil Tate from an entertainment standpoint, sure, but I'd still take McSorley. I'm still taking uh, McSorley over Khalil Tate. I'm still taking McSorley before anyone says it over Tua. <laughs> right. Uh, let's see. Played Jared a Stidham. quarter and change of a football game. Jarrett Stidham, the the entirely underrated nope. Alex Hornibrook. No. Nope. Um. <sighs> He's a damn Heisman contender next year. A legitimate Heisman contender. I'm waiting. What you got for me? I got nothing. I got absolutely nothing. He might be the best quarterback in the country next year, but yeah, let's, Oh, the internet is so stupid sometimes. So, but we, but we think people, we we got folks saying that he shouldn't even start for his own team. I mean, Tommy Stevens is tall (laughs) and he did average. Let's see. What was it? Um, uh, in 14 targets last year, he did gain 60 yards. Is Will Greer coming back? Yes. Guess what? Will, Will Greer's like a crazy Trace McSorley. I'm still taking McSorley, okay. but he's, he, you know, the Guess crazy. what? Still taking Trace McSorley right. is, I was about to say that quarterback at UCF, but it doesn't matter. I'm still taking Trace McSorley. No, nope. um, quite good, but yes. Sam Darnold's gone. Yep. 
I'm still, I would take McSorley, probably take McSorley over him too. Cause if we're talking about mistakes, uh, well, uh, I'm not even going to bring up the Josh Allen situation. Yeah. I got so many takes Dude, just bubbling I mean, up inside. I have scrolled through looking at just the base uh, passing leader stats for last year, yeah. and you are not making an argument for anybody. In defending McSorley by saying he's one of the five or six best quarterbacks in the country, I might have been underselling him. That's insane. And yet here we are. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got nothing. Uh, I mean, I love Shea Patterson if he gets to play next year, but I, you know, that's still mostly based on potential. You know, Dwayne Haskins at uh, at Ohio State's going to be pretty good, but again, potential. Fascinated to see what Shea Patterson does in that offense. In that offense, right? Less less with more. Please in. go save um, us and make plays. Yeah, that could get violent fast. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, wait, right now Riley Ferguson's gone. Um, I, I got nothing, man. I mean, not to grind the podcast to a, a complete and total halt as I look through every passing stat from t- t- 2017, but like he's the best returning quarterback in the country. That's a good way of putting it, returning. Yeah, like the, uh, the ones we know he's about. The best. The, yeah. I mean, all, I, I'm not saying that. Look, somewhere a Juco, somewhere a Juco is walking onto a P5 team and is about to put up just stupid numbers. Okay. I get it. But like, come on, guys. <laughs> Like even for the Who's internet, Texas? this is dumb, is what we're saying. Who's Texas's quarterback next year? Well, I know a couple candidates, but Ailinger or Bouchelle or whoever right, incoming freshman. Right, but Bouchelle is not. It's not resolved by any stretch, right? No, no, no. and it shouldn't be because I'm grasping at straws here. Like Kyler Murray at at OU. Who replaces Baker? Kyler Murray. Kyler Murray. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was, I was reading as you were talking. Okay, <laughs> so we've now killed the podcast by trying to answer a question that we posed. He's the best returning quarterback in college football. Shut up, stupid. Like, again, like I understand internet's kind of internet, but damn. Hang on one second, Bill. Hang on one second. We're going to clear off the audio for a second, okay? I want you, if you're listening to this and you're a Penn State fan, uh, I want you to isolate. And really all you have to do is just just keep this podcast and scrub it to this point <laughs> in the show, all right? And then I want you to put the little – put that – turn your app on when you have this argument and you're hanging out talking about – Penn State ice cream or whatever. Oh, God, that's so good. Or parking by that farmland or whatever. (laughs) I I really do like that town. I'm just being a dick right now. But put this audio on. Hey, my name is Stephen Godfrey. I am a professional sports journalist. That's Bill Connolly, and he is a professional sports journalist. If you say one more time that Trace McSorley shouldn't be starting for Penn State – I'm going to come up there and punch you in the stomach. So I just want them to form a line basically. Yeah, that's it. Okay. And okay. Now hit pause. I see that's it. So that's all you have to do. Okay. I'm going to punch you in the stomach. I'm going to get in a bar fight next time I go up there. Now, (sighs) You think that worked? Sure. Sure. Anybody, anybody's he's like, well, that guy said he was going to hit me. I'm not going to do it now. I guess McSorley isn't so bad. I should have said I'm six foot five and Trace McSorley is a better quarterback than me. <laughs> Bill, help yeah. help me. Help me as this thing falls apart. Well, it's 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 time to go anyway. So Okay. So next week we'll have the bulk of um we'll have all of this on on Thursday. We won't have done uh Appalachian. Okay, that's fine. 
we can give app their own their own episode. That'll go. go over real well. Um, well, I don't want to spoil any other surprises for uh, for our Sunbelt journey, but uh, you guys are a little stingy this week. I know we did an all ask all ask PAPN last week, but right, we had to kind of start coming. from scratch. Yeah, keep the we yeah we did kind of sort of empty the reserves. Uh, keep the questions coming. Uh, email's not as good of an idea. Um, I did uh, get a couple hashtag. emails that we'll have to address, but yeah, that later date, later date. Um, yeah, so that's it. Um, I, I hope you learned a lot about recruiting today. <laughs> um, it's I still have the team rankings pulled up as of this moment as we record this at like lunchtime on Wednesday. Um, I think Georgia has the best recruiting class of the football players and bold. Um, apparently the world is ending at LSU and, um, is there anything possible as we sign off that I can think of that's interesting or surprising about this? Nope. Got anything, Bill? No, I got nothing. I tried. (laughs) Oh, my alma mater's on probation. Go NFL. Go NFL. My alma mater's on probation after an, after an NCAA investigation of which I've covered extensively, they're still the 30th best class in the country. I love this sport. (laughs) I love it. I'll see you next week. Yep.